Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Every year, my family has a fun debate we do around Christmas season as to when is the right time to put up the Christmas decorations. Our youngest daughter, she wants to put them up as soon as Halloween is over. As soon as we put the costume away, she wants the Christmas decorations to come out. And I love to mess with her by saying, hey, you know, you got to wait until after Thanksgiving, you know, Turkey Day has to have its day, and we go back and forth uh, throughout the whole month. She'll sing Christmas carols. I'll tell her that means she'll have dry turkey, and, and it's just a fun game. But when the Christmas decorations finally do come out, my favorite is the nativity. And of course, I love the nativity because of what it represents. It's the image of what that silent night or maybe not so silent night when a baby was born um, 2000 years ago when the God of the universe wrapped himself in flesh and in prophecy to come to earth, to be the second Adam, to do what Adam and Eve couldn't, which was live a perfect life submitted to God's will in order to defeat death and the grave and to give us access back to the family of God. That is the great love story of God that we celebrate at Christmas time. But the other side of the coin is what it means to me, you know, as a family that when our daughter was little, the same one that wanted to um, get the Christmas decorations out so early when she was tiny, and, and you can still catch her doing this today, that she will go up to a nativity scene and she'll take all the figurines and face them in so that they're all focused, not on the viewer, like most of the time they're set up as, but on baby Jesus, on the Christ child. Because it's a beautiful reminder of where our focus should be that Jesus really is the reason for the season. And as I was looking at the manger this year and caught her doing that again, it it spoke to me. And I felt the Holy Spirit kind of put these these ideas in my head. I'd been praying over what I should teach and preach on this Christmas season. And God really just inspired in my heart the idea of messages from the manger. Messages from the manger. And that's what this series is going to be called. That we're going to look at the people that are represented by the figurines in the nativity set and see what their lives can show us in our day-to-day lives. How 2,000 years ago, their willingness to come and worship the newborn king in a small little town in Bethlehem can show us today how to live our lives better and more closely connected to God's best for our lives. So as we start the series, you know, start this process, we're going to save baby Jesus for last. You know, that's that's the obviously the most important central figure, but we'll start with Mary. And as we look at Mary, we have this recognition that in the Christian faith that Mary the mother of Jesus gets 
paradigms shifted depending to one extreme or the other, these polar opposites, that in some parts of the Christian faith, they venerate Mary to the point of godhood almost, right? And they would know most Christians would not say that Mary is God, but they would pray to her. They say the Hail Mary. They beseech her help and assistance. They cry out to her. And when they are seeking forgiveness of their sins, right? They pray the Hail Mary after confession, and they put Mary pretty close to the level of God. And way on the other end of the spectrum, the other side of perspective for Mary is to say she's nothing special at all. She's just another human being who happened to be the right person in the right place at the right time. That she just was another human being like me and you, nothing really special at all about her. And I think the right way to look at this is like always we view things in balance god is all about balance and to go to one extreme or the other would be to miss something yes mary was a human being she was a sinner who needed saving who needed the messiah to come but she also was special in that she found divine favor from god to be the mother of the messiah that god poured his favor out on her to allow her to spend approximately 30 years, three decades, nurturing and influencing the humanity of the Messiah. That she would not only have birthed him and nursed him, she would have fed him and clothed him and carried him from place to place and taught him. And all of these things God submitted himself to by being in human form, to needing his creation to help him, even though he was the creator. God subjected himself to that in order that he could be that perfect sacrifice to open the way to do what Adam and Eve did not. So as we look at the life of Mary, we recognize that she is special. She was chosen. She did find favor with God. And God gave her this blessing. And so if you've got your Bible, we're going to look at two different passages today. Mostly we're going to spend our time focused in the book of Matthew And we're going to look at the life of Mary as the angel came to her and came and gave her this promise. But let me set the stage as we look at this together that we understand that the Bible is a historical document. It's living and breathing. It is something that we need to understand not just from a spiritual level, but we also need to understand it from a historical level. You see, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. And we've said that before, that we have to read the Bible in its proper context. And one of the greatest ways to do that is to look at the historical context of the passage. And so in Matthew chapter 1, when we come onto the scene, we find Mary. And so let's read that together. If you've got your Bible, let's look at Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says this, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we look at this, we understand that this is the, the summary of what happens in the beginning of Mary's life. Mary is engaged to a guy named Joseph. And Joseph is a guy that's just an everyday kind of guy. There's nothing really super special about him politically. There's nothing super you know, special about him financially. Uh, he does, he's not a famous business owner. He's not a wealthy leader or ruler or, you know, connected to power, prestige, or prosperity. He's just a normal everyday guy. 
But to understand this process outside of the story, the, the Christmas story that we hear every year, we have to recognize how marriage operated in the Middle East even today. That when children are born, their families begin the process of arranging their marriages. And that's very foreign to our Western mindset where we are free to pick and choose who we date and all of these things. But it, instead of being very individualistic in the East, things are much more community and family oriented. And the thought process is that the parents would have more wisdom and experience to arrange a marriage with a person of good quality and good character and hopefully a good background. We, saw, we see in this passage in Matthew chapter 1, as we look at it, and we're going to talk more about Joseph later, but if we look at verse 19, it says, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. And so what we recognize is that the vast majority of the time, godly people are raised by godly parents. And that's not always true. Surely there are exceptions. But as a rule, when the family honors God in a humble and meaningful way, the children become followers of God in a humble and meaningful way as well. And so we see this old idea of training up a child in the way they should go. And so Joseph was a righteous guy. And that means that his family and Mary's family would have been looking for not just a, who can provide a good future for their kid, but also for someone who's of a godly character, who would be raised by a godly family. And so while this is really foreign to us, it's very natural in the East and still happens to this day. When my wife was born, she was born in Saudi Arabia. My in-laws at the time were living in Saudi at the time. And a, a Saudi prince, after she was born, brought the, invited um, my in-laws and, and to their home and had dinner and, and kind of showed off their home and their wealth and their their status and they tried to arrange a marriage between their son and my future wife and thank god for my sake that they said no um, even though my father-in-law has on multiple occasions reminded me that my wife could have been a princess and so she'll just have to settle for being my princess but as we look at this idea marriages were arranged and as the the children grew if things were still conducive when they got closer to adulthood to be an adult in jewish culture at the time and even still to this day technically a bar mitzvah for a guy or a bat mitzvah for a girl happens at age 13. so at age 13 is when traditionally men and women would be considered adults and the marriage process would move forward during this time while this process is happening the groom's family would be saving up a dowry what they would pay the bride's family for the bride, not, be, not to buy her because she's property, but what we have to recognize in Jewish culture and in Eastern culture, by and large, women are not allowed to work in the Middle East. And so they were dependent on the husband for their income and wives took care of the home, which is to say a lot. Food needs to be prepared. You know, there was no refrigerator, no freezers, no canned food, no bread with preservatives in it to last weeks. Bread had to be, be made fresh daily, maybe every two days at most. Meals had to be made. Gardens had to be you know, cultivated and tended. Houses needed to be cleaned. Clothes need to be made. All of these things are part of the home. And so to lose a daughter was to lose not just a member of the family, but also a, a productive component of the way the home operated. And so the dowry replaced that. But the goal was, if the family could afford it, 
to save that money in case something ever happened to the husband. You know, if, if, if the woman's husband died, she wasn't going to be able to, you know, continue to support herself. And so the dowry would serve as a basically life insurance. After the dowry was paid, the daughter would leave the family home of her family and move into the family home of the groom. Now, they would not be technically 100% married yet. They certainly wouldn't be, wouldn't be physically intimate with each other yet. The bride would have her own space, the bridal rooms, the bridal suite. That would be her own space. But over time, she would begin to meld and, and, and become part of her new family, her new home. And eventually, of course, after the actual marriage, then the husband and the wife would have their own home and their own space. But during this time, after the engagement was contract was, was signed and the wife would move in, it would be another series of months or years for the average family to save up for the wedding. Middle Eastern weddings are massive affairs that last days or weeks. And while that's very you know, different from our Western American mindset, where weddings last maybe a day, two at most. Middle Eastern weddings can last weeks. When I was in Kuwait, one of the local sheikh's sons got married, and it lasted almost three months and only got put to an end, put to a stop by Ramadan. So we see during this time period that they would have been living together in the same home, even if they weren't living as husband and wife, they weren't physically intimate, but they would have been getting to know each other. They would have become friends. They would have become close and began this journey of life together. So when Mary has this happen, this is life-changing. And so as we look at this passage, I'm, I'm thinking about Mary. I'm reminded of the song that's really popular at Christmas time. Mary, did you know? And if you listen to the song, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, emotional song. And I asked Mary, did you know all these things about what your baby would be? Did you know that he'd walk on water, that he's Lord of all creation, right? That all of these questions, Mary, did you know these things? And I want you to know that, that what I've recognized this year is that Mary did know. Mary knew. Mary knew what was going on in this situation. And so as we look at the passage together in Luke, Luke gives us more detail. So while Matthew tells us the summary and focuses more on Joseph, we're going to switch over to Luke chapter 1 to get more details about Mary's situation in this scenario, in this life situation. So in Matthew, excuse me, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that is Mary's cousin, who's the mother of John the Baptist, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. Now, Nazareth is a no-name town. It's a podunk, small little you know, village in the northern part of Israel. And this is where uh, such a small and, and almost kind of insignificant town that when the, the disciple and later apostle Nathaniel is told that the Messiah came from Nazareth, his comment is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Just think of that broken down small town close to you and, and what you think of when you think of that town. That's what people thought of Nazareth. So she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. We see that Mary has the divine favor of God. Now remember, another important piece of the context is that God had not spoken to his people, Israel, for over 400 years. Because of their idolatry and the spiritual adultery of the nation of Israel, God took his presence off of them. And no prophecies had been given, no visions had happened, and there was this promise that a Messiah would come to restore Israel and to be the king of Israel again. 
And this is what Gabriel is telling her. Look at verse 29. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. Now, why would he tell her not to be afraid? Perhaps it's because angels have the majesty of heaven and that they are you know, heavenly spiritual beings. Maybe that was it. But I, I think there's more than that. Because look at what he's telling her why he, she shouldn't be afraid. She's found favor with God. And look at verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. That sounds wonderful. The child she's going to have is the Messiah. She's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And this paints this beautiful picture that we tend to see in the movies and TV shows of, you know, Mary and Joseph in the manger and the baby cooing and all the wonderful things about their family and how wonderful it's going to be to raise the Messiah. How wonderful. It's like a Hallmark Christmas movie ending. But that's not real life. The reason why... Mary's confused, and the angel tells her not to be afraid, I believe, is because of what's going to happen to Mary as a result of all of this. Look at what Mary says in verse 34. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. Now, some commentators and theologians try to say that Mary is saying this to say I'm a young woman, but the context of this is, is that she has not had physical intimacy. How is it possible? And the angel goes on to tell her that the Holy Spirit is going to be responsible for this and that the baby will be holy, called the Son of God. But Mary knows what this means. We ask the question, Mary, did you know? Mary knew. What did Mary know? Well, the first thing that we can recognize that Mary knew is Mary knew what this would cost her. Mary knew the law of Moses. And in the law of Moses, Mary knew that this child was not from her husband. She was not officially married yet. She would not been physically intimate with her husband yet. And when she tells Joseph and everyone fall, finds out, there will be a fallout. That for Mary to be found pregnant with a baby that's not from her husband and she's not even married yet, this is adultery. And according to the law of Moses, she's supposed to be put to death. That according, to, if you take the additional notes that the writings of the, of the uh, ancient rabbis added to this, that if a pregnant woman was found to be pregnant with a baby that was not her husband's, they would wait until the baby was born. And after the baby was born, they would take the woman into this middle of town and the religious leaders would basically condemn her and the people of the town would throw rocks at her until she died. They would stone her to death. Mary understands the law of Moses. She knows that to go forward and do this is to mean death. That yes, the Messiah would be born and she would be his mom, but her life would be over. Now she doesn't know what's going to happen next. She doesn't know what we know that Joseph is going to, to take her and, and as his wife. She doesn't even know what we see that if we read back in, in Matthew chapter one, we'll go back there in a second, that Joseph's going to divorce her quietly. She doesn't know that yet. Here in this moment, all she knows is what the law of Moses says. She's a, she's a Jewish woman. She would have been raised more than likely in a righteous family who had taught her the law of Moses because that's how they lived. And she would have known this. Mary knew the law of Moses. She knew this meant death. Look at her response in verse 38. With this understanding, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And the angel left her.
this is our big truth for today, and we're going to dive more into this, but I want you to know right up front that Mary recognized that trusting the Word of God meant trusting the will of God. Mary knew that trusting the Word of God, His commands and His 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 decrees and his will for our life meant trusting his will for our life is going to work out for what he wants, even if it's not always what we want. Because Mary knew the law of Moses, she knew this probably meant death. And she still said, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. I can only imagine, I'm just guessing here, I can only imagine that Mary thought that she'd be put to death and she would not leave, live to see the Messiah grow up and save Israel much less the world. But she was still willing to go through that, to trust God, because trusting his word meant trusting his will. What's the second thing that Mary knew? Not only did Mary know the law of Moses, Mary also knew the heart of people. Mary also knew the heart of people. If we look back in Matthew, if we skip back to Matthew chapter 1, Looking at verse 19, it said, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man. We read that before, but look at what it says next. And did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Other translations say to divorce her. Now, legally, this would be a divorce, even though they have not technically been married. A marriage contract has been signed and agreed upon, even though the actual marriage ceremony has not happened yet. Think of it like getting legally married here in the United States before you ever say your vows. Even if you never got married, you would still have to do a legal divorce. And so Joseph is a righteous man, and he decides not to have her put to death. He's going to break the engagement quietly. He's not going to make a big deal about it. And what this would mean is that Mary would just go home. The marriage contract would be ended. The The, the dowry would be given back to Joseph's family so they could use it for the, his next marriage opportunity. And Mary would have to come back home. And Mary would have to live with the shame and the stigma thrown on her by people because she did not do things, quote unquote, God's way. We know she is, that God's divine will in order to make salvation happen, it could not be from an earthly father. Jesus had to have a heavenly father. But the rest of the world wouldn't understand this. I mean, would you or I? What would we say if this 13, 14-year-old girl pops up pregnant to somebody that's not her husband, what would we say about her? Let's be real. Let's be honest. If we would get real, we would, we would think negatively about her no matter how much we want to walk with God and how godly we want to be. Mary not only knew the law of Moses, she knew the heart of people. And that even if she did not get put to death, this would mean being sent back to her home to live the rest of her life like Hester Prynne in the Scarlet Letter where everybody that saw her would know her shame and her struggles. She knew that's what this would mean. You see, people in that day and age, and even today in the East, think communally, honor shame. It's not, and here in the West, we tend to think, that we talked about this before, it's changing, but in the West, traditionally, our mindset has been innocence guilt. If I can gather the evidence to prove myself innocent, then everybody views me as innocent. But in the honor-shame culture of the West, you don't do something wrong, you become something wrong. That Mary, by being pregnant with somebody's baby that was not her husband, even if she did not get put to death, would mean all of her life would be different. And I can only imagine what it meant for Mary and, and, and Joseph during this time. And we know, we know that Joseph gets the vision and the dream and, and he honors God and obeys God and that he marries 
Mary anyway. But can you imagine what this meant for their lives? All of the dreams they had. I can Once again, maybe I'm reading into this. This is just the James Johnson commentary. But I know when my wife and I were in our engagement season, that we dreamed about our life, what our what our careers would be, where we would build our home, where we would how many children we would have, what our children would be like, where we'd want to travel, and what we'd want to do, and all these hopes and dreams for Mary and Joseph are now gone. Because from now on, they would be ridiculed. They would be that couple. Now, I grew up in a small town and I knew plenty of those couples. I taught high school for a long time and I saw plenty of girls wind up in that situation pregnant to a man they weren't married to and maybe they got married maybe they didn't maybe the dad stuck around maybe he didn't but life changed irrevocably for them and I wonder if and we're not going to turn to here but if you were to go to Matthew 13 when Jesus begins his ministry and he comes back to Nazareth I wonder if why in verse 55 where it says then they scoffed he's just the carpenter's son and we know Mary his mother and his brothers James Joseph Simon and Judas all his sisters live right here among us where did he learn all these things and they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him I wonder if that's where this came from if the shame and stigma that Mary and Joseph endured every time somebody came into his shop or every time he applied for a job to work in a construction area as a carpenter. I'm sure the people scoffed at them and looked down on them. I'm sure every time Mary went to the well to get water or to the market to buy clothes, especially when she carried her baby with her, what did the people say? What did they whisper behind her back? Mary and Joseph did not get a Hallmark movie ending by being obedient to God. But they understood that trusting in the word of God meant trusting in the will of God. Because here's the third thing that Mary knew. Mary knew the heart of God. Mary knew, just like any Jewish person would, all of God's mighty works that he had done. And Mary knew that God wanted to come back to his people. And Mary and Joseph, too, were both willing to endure shame, struggle, persecution, probably even poverty. I can't imagine that Joseph suffered financially because of this. What would that mean for all of their life to be that couple and for Mary to be that woman? Mary and Joseph understood, yes, the law of Moses, yes, the heart of people, but also the heart of God. And you and I, as we look back at God's faithfulness, because they would have been raised to know the Torah, they would have been told about God's goodness. The command in the law of Moses is to raise your children up, telling them about God when you're waking and when you're lying down, when you travel along the road to write his commands on the doorpost of your home, that this would have been something they knew God's character and that God was trustworthy. And if God led them to it, God would lead them through it. They trusted that no matter what it cost them. So how does this pan out for you and I today? Well, this Christmas season, Maybe like Mary and Joseph, your life is not picture perfect. Maybe it's not a Hallmark movie. Maybe, like, like them, maybe you know God's law, and maybe you know the hearts of people, but oftentimes we forget the heart and the character of God. And so if you're struggling today and you're suffering, maybe even because you're being obedient to God, 
Maybe being an obedient follower of Jesus has cost you business opportunities because you refuse to comp compromise your values and do unethical things. Maybe it's cost you friendships because your lifestyle doesn't match up with that of the world and our current culture. Maybe in this season of life, you're following God and you're not seeing him come through. You've received promises and he hasn't followed through yet. And it hasn't happened the way you thought life would. We can look to Mary and Joseph and see that their life didn't happen the way they thought it would either. But it was worth it to be the parents, the earthly parents of the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us, Son of God, Prince of Peace. 2,000 years ago, Mary and Joseph were willing to endure the struggle. And I love Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And I love before Mary said that in verse 37 of Luke chapter 1, Gabriel's promise to her is that the word of the Lord will never fail. So in this season, I want you to hold fast to that promise. Yes, it was said to Mary by the angel, but it's still true to us today. The word of the Lord will never fail. And trusting in God's word means trusting in his will. That if he leads us to it, he's going to lead us through it. That just like the promise in Romans chapter 8, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord. That because we love God, he's going to cause all things, and that all means all, the good and the bad in our lives. But we are asked and called by God to have faith. And faith is trust. We trust that God's word will come to pass and that his will will be done. How did Jesus teach us to pray? His will be done so his kingdom could come here on earth like it is in heaven. So as we celebrate the birth of the King, the coming of the Messiah, and we recognize what it cost Mary, and we're going to talk more about Joseph as well in our next session. But I want you to understand that Mary knew that trusting the Word of God meant trusting the will of God. And in your life and my life today, I pray that we would be able to do the same thing to say, Lord, I'm your servant. Let everything you say come true because I trust you, because you're trustworthy. So I pray that you and I would be willing to step out in faith, no matter what happens to us, whatever the earthly consequences are, in order to obey God's heavenly will in our lives. Because trusting in the Word of God means trusting in the will of God. Until next time, be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.